0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, as I said at the end of last week, we had some real church in here last week. If you weren't here last week, church was, church was good. But you know what? I think this week's going to be better. I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm being quite serious. Uh, I, as I said last week, I get amped up. This is, the, this is my favorite Sunday of the year to preach. And uh, there's, it's sacred and it's holy. And, and of course, you may go Easter. I thought Easter is like without Easter. The, it, that's the foundation. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Yeah, but you know what? There's just something about the Holy Week. There's something about the Passion Week of him riding in on that donkey in Jerusalem. And as my brother alluded to before, the people yelling, Hoshinah, Hosanna! holding these palm branches. And these palm branches were a sign from the zealots. A revolution, uh, you know, they were thinking a revolution was going to be started by Jesus. And how amazing that was. And he was coming as a different kind of king and they missed it. But every single step along the way. And you better come here on Friday. You don't want to miss out on how the stations of the cross. That's not just a Catholic thing. It's a Christian thing. right, sometimes we look as Protestants and we go, oh, that's for the Catholics. And the Catholics look at things and go, that's for the Protestants. No, those are our brothers and sisters too, right? We're all Christians. Lord, I just, let's pray. Lord, I just pray that this morning, Father, I can't help but think that every time I look in the news, Father, we see people and they're they're looking to the donkey and they're, they're looking to the elephant. Lord, this morning we look to the lamb. Father, it doesn't matter what Republican candidate, Democratic candidate sits in the Oval Office next year, Lord. Lord, we know that we as a nation have to look to you, the risen Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, that takes away the sin of the world. Lord, that's who we're here to worship this morning. Father, we have heard the story and I know everyone in here has heard the story of what happened on uh, during this week and your crucifixion father we have seen the movie play out hundreds of times maybe thousands of times father enliven this your word Right now, this morning, may this story come alive in a new way. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit would rock this place with the story of what happened on a cross, on Golgotha, the place of the skull 2,000 years ago. Lord, I ask that lives would truly be changed, that people would truly look to you, not only as somebody they look to and say, man, he was a great person, or yeah, he was my savior. No, that we would want to really, holy, fully... Be all in and want to follow you the rest of our days. Father, we came to do business this morning. Your speaker, I came to do business this morning. Father, but I can't make things happen. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would permeate this place. Lord, I ask that the blood would flow all over this place. From the moment we start till the time we stop, that your blood would be lifted up here today. The blood that was shed. Amen. February 19th, 1944, World War II, the battle for Iwo Jima began. Uh, You see a picture up here. Iwo Jima is a eight-mile barren, you know, little island there in the Pacific. Why was it such a strategic place for us in the war in the Pacific? Because there were two airstrips. It's about 600 miles south of Tokyo. And these airstrips, if we could get a hold of this island we could contain Japanese aggression. Well, what's really interesting is that we fought in the Pacific Theater for 43 months. 43 months. One third of all of the deaths that took place in the Pacific Theater took place in one month on this island. This barren little eight square mile island. Amazing, right? It's the only battle in the Pacific where the invaders lost more lives than the defenders. The Japanese had 22,000 men that were stationed here. If you look on the bottom of the screen, that's Mount Sarabachi. Japanese were filled in there. They had tunnels and they had all these secret places that they were waiting for the Allied powers. They were waiting for the Americans to come in. And the stories of heroism, the stories of sacrifice on this island are awe-inspiring, amazing. Can I give you an example of one? Well, the first one would be there was a man, a soldier by the name of Jack Lucas. Is a picture of Mr. Lucas. Jack Lucas fast-talked his way into the Marines. He was a, a very big guy, you know, sculpted figure. You know how old he was when he got on the Marines? He tricked the recruiters. He was 14 years old. Do I have any high school freshmen in the room here today? Because that's how old this guy was. He is the youngest Medal of Honor winner in American history. Youngest. And let me tell you what he did. He makes his way in. He got stationed in Hawaii. And he's driving a jeep. That was his job. And he said, I didn't come all the way. I I didn't enter this war. I didn't didn't come here to sit in a jeep and just drive people around. I want to go where the battles are. I want to fight for my country. So this man became a stowaway on one of the ships that was headed for Iwo Jima. The other soldiers on the ship that he was on were sympathetic to his plight, appreciated what he wanted to do, and they were actually sneaking him food. When they actually hit the shores at Iwo Jima, Lucas got out. He had no gun. He found a gun on the shore there, picked it up, and joined in the fray. Now the story of how he won the Medal of Honor. He was with two comrades. They were crawling on the ground, and they were were in a trench. And they were looking around, trying to figure out what was going on. And with that, seven Japanese soldiers popped out. He took his rifle, shot the first guy, and then his rifle jammed. Before he could even flash his eyes, a grenade came in. Somebody, one of the Japanese, lobbed a grenade right at his feet. He yelled back to his comrades, grenade, grenade, he's on his feet at this point. He took the butt of his gun, his, his rifle, and he started take, taking it and jamming it into the soft ash. Another one was lobbed in at his feet, a second one. With that, he said, Grenade again? And this is hard to fathom, but this man, Jack Lucas, a real story, a real soldier, took his body and threw it on both of the grenades. But here's the best part of the story he lived. (laughs) They took him to a boat called the Samaritan. The doctors on the boat, you know what they said about him? They said he was too tough to die. Too tough. He had 21. He underwent 21 operations. 21 operations. He lived a long life too. You kidding me? Do you feel that? Do you feel the power of that sacrifice? If you go there today at Iwo Jima... In stone, this, this message is inscribed, when you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow we gave our today. Wow. Sacrifice. Bravery. Undaunted. Courage. Real stories. The blood of those individuals that sacrificed their lives. The blood cries out for us. And we walked in here today free to worship, free to sit in our seats, free to do whatever we want. And you may go, what is this? It's not, you know, Veterans Day, Memorial Day. No, listen, we don't spend, and there was an article recently in the Times, we don't, by World War II veterans, we don't spend enough time actually talking about World War II and the heroism and the bravery. But you feel the blood, right? You feel the blood. You feel the power of the blood. Can I give you one more story? And it's also a World War II story. How about this story? Again, World War II. This is in a Japanese POW camp. Give you a little picture there. Oops. Give you a little picture there. Um, The man that you see there, his name is Ernest, that's Ernest Gordon. An amazing book was written called To End All Wars. And it chronicles his time and other soldiers in World War II in Thailand while they were in this POW camp. And what's wild about his story is. Something happened in this camp with deplorable conditions. You see, one day, it was the end of a day. The men were done working. They had to line up every single day when the day was concluded. They had to take all of their tools. Everything had to be accounted for. A Japanese soldier then was counting everything that was there, going through everything. Okay, we have this, we have this. And the Japanese soldier said, we're missing one shovel. We're missing one shovel. He's in his broken English. He went up and down the road berating the men. Where is the shovel? One shovel is missing. If I don't get the shovel back right now, if I don't find out who took it, I'm going to shoot every single one of you. Nobody stepped forward. He then moved to the end of the line. Took his gun, put it on his shoulder and start aimed at the first soldier that's standing there. With that, one of the other men at the end stepped forward and said, I took the shovel. He ran over to him. He was enraged. He's incensed. He threw his gun down and he started punching the, man and the man, punching the man in his face. And the man stood still and he was quiet. He didn't make any noise. That enraged the guard even more that he picked up his gun and he started to hit him with it. The man eventually fell to the ground and he continued until he crushed the man's skull and his blood was all over the place. The other soldiers that were there, then the, the Japanese guard left. The other soldiers picked up this soldier and they brought him back to their little base and they buried his body. Well, a half an hour later, they recounted all of the shovels and they found... That all of the shovels were actually there. So there was a man that was standing here. That said, I will give up my life for everyone else here. That I didn't take the shovel. But I'm willing to sacrifice my life for everyone else that was there. Wow. Guess what? Why am I telling you these stories this morning? Why am I starting my sermon this way? Because I'm here to tell you this morning. Those individuals, you you feel the power. I heard some of you go, oh, you feel the power of the blood that was shed. You see, those men, follow this. Those men were not just saved physically. You have to see this. They weren't just saved physically. Although they were, those men in all the interviews we saw, Jack Lucas that saved those other two guys in Iwo Jima, you have to see and understand that those men's lives were changed. They said there was no way I could live my life the same way. Somebody sacrificed their life for me. It changed them. They wanted to be a better person. Now, I ask you, if the blood that I just talked about is so powerful and you say, man, that's an amazing story. What if the blood, that blood wasn't shed for you? This story, that blood wasn't shed for you. But what if, what if, what if, what if the blood was actually shed for you? Isn't that the message of the Holy Week of the Passion? That's the message when you go and you look at the cross at Golgotha. You see something was happening outside of Jerusalem. And there were three men that were being crucified. And the one in the middle, the people, many people there missed it. But it was the savior of the world. It was a different kind of battlefield. But it, was the, it wasn't just any sacrifice. It was the ultimate sacrifice. And you see, what I want to do this morning is open up your mind and your heart... To really see and understand the power of the blood that was shed. Because you think you know about it, right? You think you really know about it? Let's wait till the end of the sermon. And to do that, we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Genesis chapter 15. A story that, listen, it is in my top five of most important stories in the entire bible it really is it's a it's a chapter that i have preached from before i'm going to preach from it a little differently today but this is ultimately going to take us to one of those aha moments where at the end you go ah really that's what's that's that's what the goal of this message is today that you would look at the end and you'd see the cross and go wow i never really saw it that way there's a, an Old Testament scholar, his name is B.B. Uh, is B. Warfield. He was a, a Princeton theologian in the early 1900s. And I thought what he said was, was wonderful as it pertains to the Old Testament and its relationship to the New Testament. He said the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that's very poorly lit. That's rich right there. In other words, there are all kinds of things there you really can't see unless you open a window and let in light. From the New Testament, from the standpoint of the New Testament, looking back on the Old Testament, you see all kinds of things you wouldn't otherwise see. It's powerful, really powerful. So here's what we want to do this morning. I'm going to open a window today. All right. As we stand at the cross, I am opening a window and going all the way back to a story. So when I teach this story, it'll shed light. So you will be able to see both ways. You will fully understand what was happening on that cross 2000 years ago. What God was up to. Because he was up to something that was amazing. And we start in the beginning of chapter 15, 15 1. It says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Yes, his name will be changed to Abraham. This is the only time the word of the Lord comes to somebody in the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. This is the only time we see the word of the Lord come to somebody. So the word of the Lord came to Abram, which means I'm saying it's obviously very important in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. What is he saying here? What is the Lord? What is God saying to this is a theophany? A dramatic encounter. He is saying here, first of all, to break those words down in Hebrew, when it says, I am your great reward, that means I am your lottery winnings. That's what that really is translated in English. I am your lottery winnings. Here you are, Abraham. Here you are in this place. I am going to give you something. I'm going to protect you. And then secondly, I am going to drop something in your lap that you didn't deserve. You didn't earn this. Right? But I'm going to give it to you. And then he says in verses 2 and 3, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now you have to understand something too. The Bible is a book written by Easterners Two Easterners. We're Westerners. We think more abstractly. So in looking at this whole message, understand a lot of times Easterners look at things are pictures, right? Things are acted out. We live in a written culture. They lived in an oral culture. You have to understand and see, first of all, it's easy to miss a lot in this chapter. First thing I want you to see is look at how he talks to God. Right. This is the maker of the universe. This is almighty God. And he doesn't go, oh, almighty God. Oh, righteous one, Oh, sovereign God. He is, he's saying, what, what do you mean? What, I have no kids. What's wrong with you? Don't you see my life? Don't you understand? I don't have anything. I don't know what you're talking about. You know what the word is for this? And some of you are going to laugh when I say it to you. You know what he has? You know what Abraham has? He has chutzpah. Yeah. You know what's happened in our culture? That word means, oh, the goal of that individual. Oh, they're so pushy, right? The audacity for them to say that Hutzpah is an ancient Hebrew word for faith, for faith. Abraham had incredible chutzpah to talk to God this way. I think if I was in my bedroom, right? I'm in my bedroom and I had a theophany like this. I don't think I would talk to God this way. I don't know about you. Maybe you would, but I don't really think that I would. I'd be kind of afraid here. So chutzpah, what does it really mean? What does that word really mean? It's an important word. It's an important Hebrew word. It means somebody who is passionate Somebody who doesn't stop until they get what they want. It's like the story of the Canaanite woman. That's where this word is used. Remember the Canaanite woman that comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, my my daughter is demon possessed. And Jesus is like, I didn't, to to parrot, you know, to shorten the story, give you the reader's digest if you don't know it. He says, look, I didn't come for the Gentiles. I came for the house of Israel. But she is persistent. She has chutzpah. And he says, look, does it, she keeps going? And he says, look, does a master, you know, give, give, uh, give food to to dogs that are under the table. And she says at the end, right? She says, yeah, yeah. But crumbs fall off the table onto the floor. Right? So he's like, what? I have. Where, what kind of faith is this? What kind of chutzpah does this woman have? I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Where is this chutzpah? Abraham has incredible faith in this story. And I'm telling you this morning, God loves people that have chutzpah. God loves people that have chutzpah. So God doesn't look. God doesn't discipline him and say, Abraham, oh, it's time out for you. You can't talk to me that way. You're going to sit over here for two minutes when you're done and you learn how to talk to me. Right, parents? You know what I'm talking about? He doesn't do that to him. He answers his questions. He understands some of his doubts. And then you look, it moves on there in verse five. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven, Abraham, Abram, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So shall your descendants be. Look in the sky, Abraham. You don't think that I have big plans for you, but I absolutely do. And then he says in seven, right? Going down to seven. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. So God is telling him, I'm going to give you land. You got to just stay with this. As I walk through the story, I promise you at the end, it'll be worth it. I'm giving you land. I'm giving you descendants. And one of those descendants will be the Messiah of the world. Huh, that's not too shabby. That's pretty good, Abraham. You're having a pretty good day. This is what God is saying is going to happen to him. And I love the fact, again, that Abraham has this chutzpah. And then you look on, you you keep going here. And then Abraham is like trying to question. He said to him, bring me. Well, you know what? I'm not even going to get to that part. Let me hold off on that part. Let me just say this. I wasn't going to include some of this, but let me go there. I think, first of all, too, God was impressed that he's like almost like, You know, pulling his almighty robe and saying, I love when people actually challenge me like this. How many of us really challenge God when we pray? You know how wimpy some of our prayers are? Do you know how wimpy some of our prayers are? When I was taking a grad class, I had to go to Syosset and I had to interview somebody of another faith. And I chose Judaism because most interesting to me. And obviously we can't understand uh, it's our Christian roots. And I sat for two hours with this guy and this guy, some of the things I liked him. And then some of the things he said, I was like, whoa. And he said, you know what? Some of the Christians that I've met, and I don't know where this is coming from. They pray some of the wimpiest prayers, wimpiest prayers. And I was thinking about it this week. And I'm going, you know what? I I thought back to that. I said, you know what? That's kind of true. And we pray a lot of times. I notice in my life, you know, I pray for Ann Susan that she would be healed if it's your will. If it's your will. Are you kidding me? When I look at this story and I see the chutzpah that this guy has and he's asking God and he's challenging God and he's questioning God, where are we in terms of our prayer life and really challenging God? God, these are what your promises say in the word when it comes to health, when it comes to my finances, We need to be praying and believing. And if you don't have that kind of chutzpah, you don't have that kind of faith. You ask that he would give you that kind of faith to believe that those things, things that are unseen will come into your life. They can come into being. That's what we need. We need this kind of faith. And so he wrestles. And I love what's I love what he does. He's so honest. He talks about what's in his heart. And God is open to our doubts. Do you know that? Do you know that God is open to our doubts? I think sometimes we miss that, but God is open to our doubts. You can doubt things. Listen, God is gentle. If you notice in the story, God is very gentle with Abraham, and when Abraham comes, he doesn't—he doesn't correct him. He's absolutely gentle. You're gonna take him out, guys. Okay. So we just pray right now. We pray healing over his body right now, Lord. You could stop. Please stop that. You see Abraham and how he was letting all of his his doubts out, all of his concerns, all of his fears. He was laying everything out to God. He didn't hide any of that. And I think that's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to tell God our doubts. There's a great story. How many of you are familiar with Richard Foster? Have you ever read Spirit of the Disciplines? An amazing book. His seminal work. uh, It's affected, I mean, countless Christians. And he talks about, there's a time, not in the book, but I figured many of you would know that book. His son Nathan uh, was with him when they were skiing one time. And it was really interesting. A very poignant moment in his son Nathan's life. You see... Nathan was in high school at this point and had some questions about God and the church. And he's on the, he's on the, uh, they're on a lift and they're going up to ride down the mountain, one of the, uh, one of the slopes. And he says to his dad, I hate going to church. It's nothing against God. I just don't see the point. Now I want you to imagine being the father, right? Your son says this to you. He's a, he's a minister, right? hes he's written books. This is what he's devoted his whole life to. So here is his young high school son who makes these comments to him. And the kid didn't know. He wrote his own book in 2010 and he talks about the story and he said, I didn't really know how my dad was going to handle it, but I love what Foster says back. He said, you know what, son? He said, sadly, many churches today are simply organized ways of keeping people from God. Are you kidding me? That's what the father said back to the son. So then the son went on, he went on this like little like tirade, this rant. And he said, I found more grace and love in worn out folks at the local bar than those in the pews. And instead of allowing our pastors to be real human beings with real problems, we prefer some sort of overworked rock star. How true is that? And I love Foster smiled and he quit back. He said, good questions, Nate. Overworked rock stars. That's funny. You obviously put some thought into this. And guess what? He said, his son said, that was the turning point in his spiritual life because his dad reacted in such a way that he didn't shame him. He didn't look at him and say, how could you question the church? How could you question this? How could you question that? He embraced the fact that his son was questioning what was going on in the church. And I say that because we have to be a people that are open to skepticism Tim Keller talks about it in The Reason for God. He says, if we we have churches that don't allow our young people to ask questions, they will turn into skeptics. They will leave the church because we're not answering and helping them with their questions. Don't be alarmed when your kids have questions. My six-year-old in the car today, funny, right? Says to me on the way to church, Dad, why do we have to go to church? Why do people go to church? What if they don't want to go to church? That's great. Right before I have to speak. That's a great question. How much time do you have, Jameson? Right. How true is that? We need to be gentle with people that have questions and doubt, because at some point at the end of the day, you have to believe that this is rock bottom foundational truth. This is the bedrock. So if this is the bedrock, you let your kids go look. You let your kids go search. Because at the end of the day, they're going to come back to what is ultimately true. The inerrant word of God. His story. At some point they will. Don't be worried about you. Pray about it. Pray about it. But know at the end of the day, their questions are good. This is a church. City on a Hill Community Church is a place where your questions are welcome. Where you as a skeptic, you are welcome. We don't have answers for everything. I don't, I, I don't profess to have answers. Pastor Linda, Pastor, we don't have answers for everything. But we will try to answer your questions and we will try to help you in that endeavor. So parents, don't shut your kids down. If they have questions, I love what God does. God is gentle with him, but also notice God continually comes back. You have a question on this? He doesn't leave him where he is in his doubt. He answers a question. He moves on. He tries to answer another question. He is gentle, but does not want to keep him exactly where he stands. Does that make sense? It's very important for us as Christians to really follow that. So what, is, what happens in this story? What does God do? Abraham is questioning. He's wondering. So what God does is, God says, I am going to cut a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to cut a covenant. Now, a covenant was an agreement that would take place between a greater and a lesser. Every single time there would be somebody that was greater and there'd be somebody that was lesser. The greater would go first in the covenant, the lesser, whatever they decided, the lesser would either have to accept or the lesser would have to reject. And when you look at ancient, you know, uh, ancient time here and you look even today in Israel, they still cut covenants. Do you know that? They still cut covenants. And marriages, back 2,000 years ago, there would be one. In the marriage, there would be one that was greater and there would be one that was lesser. I don't know about American culture, right? Trying to figure that out, who's greater and who's lesser, right? Don't look at the person next to you. You can figure that out at home. But that's what they would do. That's what they did in this culture. So God says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And one of those descendants, again, is going to bless the whole entire world. We're going to call him Messiah. Abraham. What is your job? Here's what Abraham does. And this is another part of the text that you can miss. So he said to him, God says to Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, not a partridge in a pear tree, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Now, I want you to notice something. God did not tell him to cut up the bird. He didn't tell him to cut up the animals. Do you notice that? You look in the story. God never said once in the story, you are to cut up these animals. Abraham knew then exactly what to do. Abraham cut them and he created, I've showed you this picture in the past a couple of years ago. He created what was known as a blood path. Do you ever see how much blood is in a cow or an animal? So when they would actually, they would cut these animals the blood that would be there, it would puddle up and eventually it would form what was known as a blood path. Thus, why they called it cutting a covenant. So he does more than he's commanded to do here. And the way they would seal the covenant is, this is wild. They would hike up their robes. They would take their sandals off. And the greater party would always walk in the blood path first. Yes, walk in the blood. They would walk through it. Then the lesser party was supposed to do the same exact thing. They would walk through the blood path. By this, they were saying to the other person, if my son or my daughter is in everything that you hoped they would be, may this happen to my body. You have to see this. May this happen to me. And even today i 've listened i 've read about this we were in israel i didn 't talk to anyone when we were there, but i 've read this in enough credible places that even today, if there was somebody there two parties and somebody got married and say the, the wife or the husband didn 't keep up their end of the bargain, they would wind up somewhere in some area, and there would be sandal prints on their head. there would be sandal prints all over the place. This is so serious. This is a real covenant. Now we live in a culture again, right? We live in a written culture. When we are going to do something, you you sign an agreement, you sign a lease agreement. I am agreeing, I promise to pay whatever it is. You get a contractor, you bring somebody in your home, right? You make an agreement, you sign some documents. You are in essence saying, yes, I agree to pay for whatever materials, your labor and all that. And they in turn are committing to give you whatever quality of work that you're looking for. Yeah. Don't you think, wouldn't it be more interesting if we actually did this today? I think you'd get better service if you had a contractor come in and you said, hey, by the way, what do we do it the way they did in the ancient days? So this is what they did. They really did this. They would cut a covenant. So... What is going on inside of Abraham's mind here? Because you have to see in the story what's easy to miss. When two people go through, God is saying, I'm making a covenant here. Abraham, this is blowing his mind. And God is saying to Abraham, what is your part in this covenant? You know what Abraham has to do? You have to be righteous. You have to be perfect. You have to be blameless. You can't make any mistakes. That's all you have to do, Abraham. That's it. Nothing else. Just be perfect. Can you imagine what's going through this man, this old man's mind, when he realizes that's what God is asking him to do? He realizes that if he puts his little twist, his toes in that blood, he realizes he is dead. He realizes he can't keep his end of the bargain, he can't keep his end of the covenant. And then you go to verse 12, look what it says. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Lost in translation here again. Let me tell you, now this does not mean it was getting physically dark. But what we miss here in Hebrew, what this is saying is... The Abraham is not going, go to sleep, go to sleep, little Abraham he 's not going to sleep and waking up. Abraham is experiencing spiritual darkness. Abraham is experiencing spiritual terror. He doesn 't know what to do. It is physically dark, and now it is spiritually dark. He is agonizing over the fact of what his part is in this covenant that God is cutting with him. How am I supposed to do this? I can't be upright. I can't be perfect. I can't be blameless. How am I supposed to do this? And then look what God does. Here it is. You made it. If you're awake, you made it. (laughs) In verse 17, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, That behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. This is one of the most amazing parts of the entire Bible. And the first part here, where it says, in some of your translations, will say, a fire pot here. You know what it really should be translated? Billowing smoke. Billowing smoke. In the book of Isaiah, there's smoke that filled the temple. When Solomon was dedicating the, uh, t- at the temple, there was smoke that filled the temple. Mount Sinai, smoke came down. So here we see this. God comes through the blood path in billowing smoke. What would that have looked like to Abraham as he's cutting this covenant? Stay with me. What would that have looked like as the smoke is moving through? That's God, right? So God has done the first part. Now it's Abraham's turn. It's Abraham's turn to walk through the blood path. Every single time, the greater goes first and then the lesser goes. So again, I see this man sweating, agonizing. What am I doing? He knows the second his feet go in the blood, he is done. He's dead because he can't keep up his end to the bargain. And with that, we see that God comes in and it's as if God takes his hand and he puts it up against Abraham's chest and says, no, you're not going through the blood path. I'm going through a second time. And he goes through the blood path a second time here. And I love this. This, this can be actually broken down. It means a, a torch, a streak of lightning actually went through there. What did that look like? This old man is standing there and he, trust me, again, he cut up the animals. He understands what a covenant is. You can't lose this piece. He understands what that means. And then for God to go through the the blood path twice. He doesn't go through it once. What's going on here? What is God up to? What is God doing? I'll tell you what was going on there. God is saying. And he's saying to us today, he's saying if you and your descendants, including those people at City on a Hill Community Church on March 20th, 2016, if you ever fail me in this covenant, if you ever fail me, you may do this to me. You may do this. the animals that are there. If you ever fail this covenant, you may do this to me. And Abraham knew, oh my gosh, I can't keep the covenant. God's saying, you don't have to keep the covenant, Abraham. You can keep the covenant. At that very moment, do you realize what was happening in heaven? God at this, why is this one of the best stories in the Bible? Because at this very moment, God was sentencing Jesus Christ to death. At this very moment, Jesus Christ, who is in heaven at the right hand of the father, knew. I guarantee you the father and the son looked at each other and they knew what was going on. That this is the moment that the only way for the covenant to work out was that God had to die himself. And God had to die in Abraham's place. And from that point on, every sacrifice that was made was for the purpose of forgiving sin. But you know what? Somehow in our Western ideology, we think that animal blood forgives sin. It doesn't forgive sin. Animal blood was thrown at the base of the altar. You know why? You know why animal blood was thrown? You know why they made sacrifices? God, don't forget your covenant. Don't forget what you did in Genesis 15 with Abraham. You have to see this. It's mind-blowing. Every single sacrifice that was made was pointing back to this moment, this seminal, important moment in our history that, look, I promise you, I promise you, Jewish people, I promise you, Gentiles, that I will make good on my promise and I will keep my end of the bargain. Are you awake yet? Some of you are sleeping. crazy. How could you sleep through this? This is unbelievable. The story. Now, what I'm doing? just the story. This is your God. And then you go. I'm not done. This is the, the best part's coming right now. You go to the book of Deuteronomy. This is this is crazy. Every single day, at nine o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon, God told the people He wanted the priest at the place where He put His name, and He wanted. A sacrifice done. One of the five animals that you saw here in the story. Every single day. Understand, right? Every day. At nine in the morning. Every day. At three o'clock in the afternoon. Every single day. There was a sacrifice that was made. Not some days. Moses, he comes on the scene. It's really hot. I don't want to do it. You got to do it. It's really cold. You got to do it. Every single day at nine o'clock and at three o'clock, there were sacrifices that were made. And listen, for 1,200, this is one commentator, for 1,200 plus years, minus the time the temple was destroyed, first in the tabernacle, then Solomon's temple, then in the temple built by Ezra and restored by Herod, God every single day was beseeched. God, don't you forget your promise. You promised us that you would be the one. You did the covenant. You walked through two times. Aren't you glad that God is faithful? Aren't you glad that you serve a faithful God? Now, by Jesus' time, it became an elaborate ceremony. Now, this is what is wild about it. At five to nine... In the temple, this is real history. At five to nine, you would have a priest that would be ready with the knife, ready to sacrifice the animal on the pinnacle of the temple. They called it the pinnacle. There would be somebody up there with a shofar. Somebody would have a shofar. What was the shofar? It was a ram's horn that reminded the people of Abraham's experience in the desert. So at 5 to 9, there was somebody on the pinnacle every single day at 9 in the morning and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There was a priest that was there to cut the animal's throat. There was another priest that was on the floor in the temple with an hourglass right, or a sundial. And they were there, and when 9 o'clock hit, when 9 o'clock hit, and when 3 o'clock hit, they would say, it's time! It's time! And everybody within earshot of that in Jerusalem, would, they would stand silently. And they knew exactly what that meant. God, keep your promise. God, with chutzpah, keep your promise. God, with passion, keep your promise. Come with me now to the streets of Jerusalem. Josephus says there are two million people in Jerusalem. You know why they're there? It's Passover. And Passover is they're celebrating how they were emancipated from the Egyptians. Remember the angel of death? And it it passed over the homes that had the blood of the lamb out there. It is Passover. You can't miss this for your Christian lives. You have to get this. It's Passover. Everybody that was in the city on that Thursday would have been getting a spotless lamb. They were picking out a lamb. A lamb that had no blemishes. On that Friday, they would have been eating the Passover meal. Are you following this? On Friday. On Good Friday. Josephus says two million people are there. The only difference on that Friday was... Three men are outside the city and they're on crosses. And at 5 to 9 the call came and they said, "It is time." And every single person in Jerusalem knew exactly what was going on. And what does the Bible tell us? Why did I, why am I showing you this today? Because this is the story of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel said it was the third hour. Do you know what time the third hour is? The third hour is nine o'clock a.m. Go do your history. Go, go fact check me if you want. The third hour is nine o'clock. That means when Jesus was put on that cross, that's what they would have heard. The shofar would have blown and everybody that was there would have heard that sound and they knew what it meant. God, with chutzpah, keep your promise. Keep your promise. Wait, wait, wait. This is the best part. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land and at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At three o'clock, you heard the same thing. And John tells us in the crying, agonizing voice of a crucifixion victim, Jesus. Receive the sour wine. And please see this. He didn't say it is finished. He screamed, it is finished! Everything you said you were going to do, it is finished! For 1800 years! Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It is finished! Us, I know the enemy wanted to stop us this morning. You can't stop us. Sorry. This is what happened two thousand years ago. This is what happened. It's real history. I can't wait for the day when we can go into heaven and we can really see what that was like. So many people missed it. The man in the middle was really crucified. God was really telling a story. He was making it come full circle. And what was it like all morning? Well, I thought I just kept crying all morning. I said, what was it like when Abraham was in heaven and Abraham and God, when, they, when there was that connection? What was that like? Oh, God, now I get it. Now I get why I didn't have to walk into the blood. Now I get what you were doing. You were saying to yourself, I don't fully understand it. The angels, everybody was in awe. And it went all the way back to the story of Abraham in Genesis 15. You see, friends, I told you, it's a little different, right? Yeah. To see the crucifixion. I hope your holy week, your passion makes a little different. Can I tell you one more story in closing? Billy Graham, in 1955, he writes in his autobiography... He talks about when he was invited to speak at Cambridge University in England. And he was speaking to students at the great St. Mary's Hall. Now, many of the people that were there in England at Cambridge, scholars. The John Stotts of the world. I mean, these are some really smart people. They looked at Billy Graham. There were articles that were written in the Times of London and other you know, uh, newspaper publications. And they looked at Billy Graham as this like country bumpkin. This fundamentalist. Who is this fundamentalist that is coming to speak to us? And many of them, get this, many of them did not believe that we needed the blood, the blood of Christ. We needed that for the forgiveness of our sins. We didn't need atonement, atoning. Are you kidding me? That's what many people thought. So Billy Graham was invited. Listen, he was invited to speak for four days. So Billy Graham goes there and he says in his autobiography, I wrote the best sermons you could possibly imagine. And I had scholarly quotes. I had, you know, you name it. I spoke to all those people, those intellects. I was going to tell them I was going to show them. And first night, nothing happened. The second night, same message. Nothing happened. The third night, same exact thing. Nothing happened he went home and left there and said, I, 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 can't, I can't do this. And he heard God speak to him. And God was telling him, you need to preach about the cross and you need to preach about the blood. And Billy Graham got up and uh, Dick Lucas, who was a preacher from England, I read this and this is another thing. that was so moving to me this week that Lucas said when he spoke, many of these scholars looked very smug when he started talking about the blood of Christ because they said to themselves, they don't know. He doesn't know who he's talking to, that these students are not going to buy any of this garbage. And for 45 minutes, Billy Graham went from Genesis to Revelation and there was blood all over the place. And he talked about every single sacrifice and 400 people came to To know God there. And many of them became pastors and preachers. And many of them were moved and touched. Because Billy Graham spoke about the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. numerous people there were numerous stories of people that they said when people when were you touched at the billy graham conference i know exactly when it was it was the last night it was wednesday night when billy graham went off the script when billy graham talked about the blood of jesus christ there is power in the blood there is power in this table here today i hope you feel that there is more power here today than you've ever felt in your entire life There is power for healing in this table today. There is power for your finances here today. There is power and healing for your marriage here today. There is power and healing for the relationships with your kids. There is power here today at this table for those that are estranged. There is power here for sin and you feel like that you're entangled in something and you're in bondage. There is power here today because of what was done on that cross 2,000 years ago. Preaching today. I felt like preaching today. This is the good news. But it's not easy because I told you you've heard right, you've heard the story so many times. I've heard it so many times. May Palm Sunday and Easter 2016 be a little different for you when you realize and look back at the story that God was telling as the window was open this morning and you got to see and fully understand who your God is. Lord, Lord, words do no justice to expressing how thankful we are that you kept your promise with chutzpah. Father, I thank you for the passion that your son walked the face of the earth with. I thank you for the passion as he walked through the entire week. I thank you for the passion that he showed in the garden of Gethsemane. Lord, how he was tired and he was weak and he's sweating drops of blood but Lord, your life was living in him and through him. Lord, I thank you that when he was on that cross and he was forsaken, Lord, he looked into the future and he saw us. He saw those at City on a Hill Community Church. He saw us March 20th, 2016 and he said, it is finished for you for all time. Stop striving. Stop trying to make it. It is all done. Father, help us to stop trying to get in your quick graces. Help us to just accept what you did. Lord, I'm so thankful that we're here because you kept your promise. love you, Lord. May this Easter be like none other. May this Good Friday service, as we walk around the stations of the cross, may we not forget your amazing story. Amen. Bless Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.